this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about international business, supply chain and globalization and the effects that these have had on the way we work, play and live over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and for my interviewees from around the world. In today's program, we will be talking to Alexander Noroth, partner at the Dusseldorf-based management consulting company Lebenswerk Consulting Group. This is the second time that Alex joins us on the show this year and I've asked him back because one of his specialist areas of expertise is ocean freight transport, having worked with international logistics companies such as Daxer, Schenker, WorldNet, CTC and Maersk over the years and I wanted to get his views on the impact of the recent blockage of the Suez Canal by the 200,000 tonne container ship ever given. Uh, with nearly 20,000 containers on board and the resulting disruption to global trade and supply chains. So the ship was stuck in the canal for six days starting on the 23rd of March and during that time a backlog of some 450 ships of all types and sizes with billions of dollars of freight on board was held up. Indeed, the last of these delayed vessels only managed to pass through the canal over this past weekend, nearly two weeks after the initial blockage. So welcome back Alex and thank you very much for being here with us again today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Patrick. You're very welcome. Uh, so tell me, Alex, what was such a large ship doing in such a tight channel? Well, the uh, size of the container ships have increased astronomically. So maybe to give you some background, when I worked at Mersla in 2006, I sailed on board of a Panamax vessel through the Panama locks, for, through the Panama Channel. Back then in 2006, the maximum capacity of the Panama Channel was 3,000 TEUs. Now we're looking here at over 20,000 TEUs, as you just described. Um, and um, in all respects, the channel uh, from the Suez Canal authorities is officially opened to ships uh, that size of the ever given. Um, and ships have, like I said before, increased astronomically uh, because of the economies of scale effect. The more containers you put on a ship, the cheaper it is for the line. To drive down the costs and as a consequence the higher the profits are per load and um, the problem is uh, not so much the length of the ships but more the width of the channel so the ever given was 400 meters long but the channel is only 205 meters wide um, so no ships can turn uh, on its own there and um, yeah probably the authorities never expected that this would happen but if you ask me it was just a matter of time until it happened Mm -hmm. So tell me, why have ships like the Ever Given grown so much larger over the last 20 years? I, I know you mentioned the, um, the the cost, perhaps, but is, is, is there something else driving that? Are there other factors driving it? Well, look, I mean, there's a couple of things. So there's demand. Uh, I mean, the world population is growing um, in the internet-rised age. People are ordering more and more from China. Certainly during COVID-19, people have even more been bound to uh, order online. Uh, most of the stuff is manufactured in China. So, um, you know, the, the top players like Maersk, uh, Evergreen, CMA, CGM, MSC have basically had a record after every year, especially from 2006 onwards, to build the biggest ship. Uh, that slowed down about, Patrick, about two or three years ago. And now um, there is new uh, vessel generations coming up, I think, between 24 and 26,000 TEUs. So it's really mostly um, demand-driven, but especially from a cost point of view, the carriers have an interest to have uh, as minimum as possible costs per container 
in order to maximize the yield uh, per load the sail. Mm-hmm. And how much bigger do you think the ships will become? <laughs> so um, some engineers have said that the um, maximum length has been reached of 400 meters. I mean, anything beyond that gives a huge, huge pressure to uh, tugboats and especially to the berth dimensions. But the width is probably something which we've still been growing. So at the moment, the Ever Given probably has a width of around, uh, or like a wideness, it's probably a better word, of about 60 meters. But ships can even grow a bit bigger, you know, 70 to 80 meters. Uh, mm-hmm. And as a consequence, um, again, um, improve the, or further increasing the capacity. Um, as a consequence, though, the ports have to basically um, stretch the reach of the gantry cranes, of the cranes which take away the containers. Uh, so it's always a knock-on effect on the chain. But if you ask me, uh, I think anything uh, up until 28,000, 29,000 TU is the absolute uh, maximum of what is uh, possible from an engineering point of view. And so we see those infrastructural limitations yeah. in, in port. So but the actual canals themselves, say, for example, Suez and, and yeah. Panama, are they going to reach a limit? I know they were upgraded in the last decade, but are they reaching a limit as well? So if we maybe just start with the Suez Canal, which probably most listeners are interested in to hear. So we have a, a width of around 205 meters. So, um, and it's designed in a way that both ships at the same time can pass each other, right? So mm-hmm. um, if there are two ever-givens coming, the one from the north, the other one from the south, in theory, they can pass each other. Um, and uh, But obviously there's limitations up to 70 meters width, otherwise it gets very dangerous. The channel is 24 meters deep. So you have some uh, restrictions there, and just to um, basically extend the wideness of a canal is extremely uh, cost-intensive. The um, Panama Channel is a bit smaller. Uh, it has to do with that that uh, most port uh, or most cargo is being cleared from China, Patrick, in the eastern ports uh, of the United States. So um, you know, in Long Beach, most famously, especially, um, and uh, then you see about eight to 11,000 TEUs, so only half the capacity being able to sail through the uh, Panama Channel. You can go up to 14,000, but most of these ships are a lot smaller than what we see from Asia to Europe, simply because most of these ships don't need to pass the Panama Channel because uh, then you know most of the goods are coming from Europe into the US. So hence, uh, not really being an attractive destination in front of the shipping lines. Mm-hmm. So with Su- with Suez then designed for two-way flow, and this yeah. ship became blocked. We don't fully know why as yet. There's an investigation underway. So it's conceivable that two ships of that size could actually collide in Suez, right? Well, they each have um, you know so-called um, pilots on board, um, which uh, you know is part of what you pay for. So you pay about two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars passage, yeah. And you have pilots on board, especially to prevent that, right? It's so pilot is more like a navigator who is on board. Uh, so this is quite rare, also because the ships have anti-collision systems um, mm-hmm. similar to like what aircraft has on board. Um, you know, with every uh, catastrophe of this magnitude, there is uh, several factors involved, not just one. So, you know, people have said there have been forty knot winds. Um, there have been has been a sense of blocking the view. To me personally, there is a human element involved as well. You know, it's a bit like uh, when you've passed the canal for a thousand times as a pilot, sorry, as a captain, you get maybe a little bit um, less risk averse than what you should be. So I think it's all a matter of very bad conditions, 
um, and also the human element which plays in here, but only a full investigation will probably tell us the truth, like Patrick, in a, in a couple of weeks or months. Yeah, yeah. So uh, apart from the, the technicalities of, of this the size of ships and so on, how important is ocean freight today, uh, ocean freight transport to our modern economies and the way we live today, the way we consume today? Look, modern life wouldn't be possible without ocean freight, period. If you wouldn't have ocean freight, uh, everything which you see, uh, you know, um, electronics, um, other um, stuff in uh, DIY market, uh, markets, even international imported uh, food goods would go up by four to six times the price because you have to air freight everything and also wouldn't, wouldn't be viable. In the Suez Channel alone, 30%, so three zero, 30% of containerized global ocean freight flows through that. And, um, you know, the majority of global trade is in these boxes. So it is a huge, huge, huge integral part of our uh, wealth today um, of nations and also of our very comfortable life these days. I think I mentioned in the introduction that it's taken from the, from the time the ship became lodged from the time that the blockade started on the 23rd of March until the last of the ships that was held up. So some 450 vessels were were held up. And I think the last of those went yeah. through over the Easter weekend, probably around the 3rd or 4th of April. Um, so what, what kind of knock-on impacts is this distribution going to have in terms of cost and, and delays? And how long do you think it will take for things to get back to normal? Yeah, so uh, maybe I'll start with the last question first. So I think things back to normal, we probably look at another seven to 10 weeks, simply because you have port restrictions on both ends in Europe and on Asia. And if all of a sudden 60 ships go through it at the same time, then um, it, there will be a huge, huge demand for clearing these ships in these ports. And that will probably take seven to 10 weeks. Uh, in terms of costs, we have to look at different players. So um, the canal authorities alone um, make as much as $15 million every day in port dues from uh, the ships passing by. You know, I've mentioned earlier that every ship has to pay an average between $200,000, $250,000 uh, per load, and you've got about uh, 70 to 80 ships passing it every day. Um, so you've got that, then you have the cost of salvage. Um, and that's certainly very, very high. And now what the Port Canal Authority have done is they have basically seized Patrick that ship um, in the lake. So the lake is basically in the middle between the south and the north. And they said, we want um, a compensation from either uh, Evergreen, which is the owner of that ship, or uh, the insurer, uh, because they claim, well, we have been helped to basically salvage your cargo. You can now continue to sail. And they claim that the cargo value alone is $3.5 billion uh, on the single ship, uh, because they got 20,000 containers. And as a consequence, they want to reclaim $1 billion in compensation for that. Um, and then you've got um, basically insurers who estimated every week, and now we've seen almost two weeks of, um, you know, basically blocking the canal, every week cost the world economy between eight to $10 billion simply because goods don't arrive on time. You've got the cost of goods based uh, being um, on the vessel, not being able to be sold, you know, on supermarket shelves and wherever else. So um, again, the canal authorities want to reclaim $1 billion. Um, I think they're probably going in very, very high, but now they have basically a lien, they basically seized that vessel. And um, the victims of that is all the shippers who have freight on this ever given vessel. Yeah, because now 
they are basically the victims now of this legal battle and this ship can be blocked for several months, to be honest. Okay, so you've got all of these people here in Europe waiting for uh, patio heaters and garden furniture and a lot of it's probably yeah. on, on the ever given, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Okay, so do you think is this kind of disruption a sign of the future of things to come with the ever-increasing size of ships, the ever-increasing uh, volume of, of movements? Are we looking at more of this in the future? So, I mean, people talk of this as a, like a black swan uh, event, so something which no one could have ever forecasted. You know, the thing is, people are very quickly in saying, well, uh, you know, this is a disruption and, uh, you know, okay, so can this happen more and more? I think when you maximize capacity, like we've seen on this vessel, and now you're uh, looking at, you know, physical limitations, the canal is only 200 meters wide, but the ship is 400 meters long. To me, it's a matter of time till something happens and then the whole thing blocks and no one factored this in. So I think with um, companies being more and more, um, you know, profit driven and trying to really maximize every dollar and cents out of it, of course, we're going to see disruptions because there will be some people who are trying uh, to maybe, um, you know, blend out the risks. And then you've got many, many people who are uh, the victims of that. So, uh, yes, uh, we also live in an age, you know, no one probably has foreseen uh, a couple of things. You know, if I look at uh, Brexit, no one really has forecasted that Leicester FC, who won the Premier League, I think a couple of years ago. Um, so disruptions always have been there, Patrick, around us, but the level of speed it accelerates is unprecedented. And they're just, um, you know, a result of the internet rise age. So the reason why we have so much quick change and uh, overnight uh, successes and failures is mainly due to the internet from the 80s. So, yes, uh, to answer in very short, we will see more of these disruptions in the future, for sure. Okay. And are there other locations around the world in terms of ocean freight that are vulnerable either to accidents, terrorist attacks, weather incidents, piracy that could also cause major disruption to global trade routes? We know Suez is one and it's in a, it's in a quite a sensitive area. Are there others that we should be looking at? So um, if, if we now maybe stay in Europe, because most of our listeners probably uh, live, um, you know, in Europe, um, we uh, have the uh, channel, right, the channel between uh, Ireland, UK and Europe. Um, and there um, is a very, very highly frequented route. So ships can collide there and has happened before. Uh, but uh, the effects won't be as dramatic as in Suez because it's simply very, very wide. So people uh, won't be blocked. Um, then um, certainly something like a pandemic, um, you know, is one disruption which has happened before. Um, or now that we have seen it can happen again uh, because everything is so interlinked with each other and um, our risk management systems are not really reliant uh, or are not really designed uh, to cater for those. Maybe now they will, but they haven't been uh, so far. Then you have the risk of piracy attacks. You have the risk of um, ships as a result, Patrick, of this huge size get more and more vulnerable against stormy weathers and waves uh, washing away containers. So in the first, like in the first three months, as an example, in the first three months of 2021, more than 3,000 containers have been washed aboard from vessels. Now, some people have said, oh, this isn't very much. There are 100 million containers uh, to be transported every year. Well, think of it a bit like uh, you've got 100 million airline passengers every year, but if you have 3,000 casualties over the first three months, this is very, very high. 
And I think we see this because now the vessels have reached a limitation. So I really hope that the shipping lines will um, you know, consider risk management systems and consider higher cost in investing the fleet and upgrading the fleet to limit um, the physical limitations of that. And everything else really is a matter of um, risk management, to be honest. Yeah, I guess there are other locations in terms of ocean freight that perhaps would be worrying. One is perhaps the Straits of Hormuz between Iran and Oman and the other perhaps Straits of uh, Malacca between uh, Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. I think both of those are, 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 are quite vulnerable, would you say? Well, I mean, they used to be uh, about 10 to 15 years ago quite vulnerable, Patrick, in terms of piracy attacks, but it has decreased quite a bit. Um, so uh, there has been less, and there hasn't really been many incidents yet. So that's why I haven't mentioned this yet. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The Strait of Malacca is probably the most frequented route in the world. But again, here, um, you know, compared to the Suez Canal, something like what we've seen there could never happen because the Strait of Malacca is many, many miles wide. So even if you have a collision, even of three or four vessels involved, you can still sail around it. So the magnitude of uh, Suez Canal, we hopefully only see once in a generation. Okay. So uh, in terms of what importers and exporters should be doing, and you yeah. mentioned there in, in terms of um, the risk management or risk evaluation systems, what do you think they should be doing to feed these considerations into their business strategies to mitigate these types of things in the future? So I think there are three things uh, they can do. The first one really is to um, increase your safety stocks. Yeah, um, I mean, all of us are trying to really limit our safety stock because it's basically dead capital. But um, if you have a little bit of excess stock, you can limit the effects of a sudden congestion. Because don't just think of the Suez Canal, you, you know, strikes can happen in some ports, especially in French ports. We've seen this quite a bit, transshipment ports. Um, you know, and other port congestion due to wind bound, being windbound or like other uh, disruptions. Uh, that's the first thing. The second one is to really look into other alternative transport modes to get your goods, especially if it is urgent from Asia into Europe, for instance, using uh, rail freight. Uh, you're not only reducing your CO2 emissions per container quite significantly, but you also have um, seven to 10 days advantage in transit times because it's less it's slightly more expensive than ocean freight not as much as it used to be at the moment the rates are still very very high probably between five to eight thousand dollars per 40 foot container but they're only marginally higher um, on rail freight and the third thing you can really do is to think of maybe sourcing or maybe even insuring uh, production because then you're not so reliant anymore on um, you know importing all of your goods yeah, actually, I have noticed uh, anecdotally among clients, mm -hmm. uh, particularly pharmaceutical manufacturing clients in Western Europe, where yeah. they have decided to um, set up sources of supply for critical items, crit critical ingredients from yeah. Eastern yeah. Europe instead of India and China. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a development that's ongoing. Interesting that you mention uh, the price and the cost of bringing containers from Asia to Europe at the moment. So even before the Suez incident, I think we'd been speaking about this before, there had been a lot of volatility with the price and the availability of space for ocean freight between Europe and Asia in particular. What was, what was the cause of this already before Suez? And will this incident affect these ongoing issues, the price and the, and the, and the space and so on? 
Well, it certainly won't help it. I mean, to uh, cool it down, <laughs> to be honest. Well, the reasons very quickly, again, also here was a perfect storm. So first, you know, was the sudden increasing demand due to the pandemic from goods which were manufactured in China, um, especially from the US and from, um, and from Europe, just being forced to order everything online. And we know that most goods there on platforms like Amazon are, produ are manufactured in China. The second one is that uh, you have an oligopolistic market with five global ocean lines having more than 65% of market share. This is 25% uh, higher than the market share they had the same lines 10 years ago. And the third point certainly is that the shipping lines have an interest to keep or to drive the rates up because they had record losses in the last few years. So all of this combined basically led to a very, very sharp increase in ocean freight rates. Um, I think we've seen, Patrick, and also in some projects, uh, I've helped clients to reduce the ocean freight here. I've seen rates between eight and $10,000. And with uh, a clever mix of, um, you know, container and uh, container lines and freight forwarding agreements, we could lower them by 30 to 40%. But most shippers, especially on the spot market, had to pay very, very high rates. And now the Suez Canal won't help to cool it down. You know, the uh, carriers are very inventive when it comes down to excess charges, peak season surcharge, uh, Suez Canal blockage, emergency risk surcharge. I'm just making this up, but it's probably how it probably <laughs> would sound like. Uh, yeah, um, they even had an emergency buff surcharge, so bunker adjustment factor surcharge. And um, so honestly, we see these um, rates as a result on a very high, especially in the sport market until the end of the year, I reckon. Okay. I wanted to run something past you, a kind of a general yeah. general comment and just see what you what, what your own perspective is on it. So for the last um, 30, 40 years, say, global supply chains uh, grew and they extended all around the globe, pretty much unbeknownst to most people going about their everyday uh, life if they don't work in, in, in supply chain. And the growth in ocean shipping and containerization were kind of both enablers and there were consequences of that. And now over the last uh, three, four years, supply chain has come into the mainstream. It's in the mouths of TV presenters, politicians, news readers. And, um, you know, that's been that's been driven, I guess, by all the things that have happened. And you, you spoke about the acceleration of unpredictability and volatility in the world we live in. So we've had Fukushima, we've had the Icelandic uh, volcano, we've had Brexit. Yeah. We've had Trump's trade wars, COVID, and now this uh, Suez incident. Yeah. So what do you think personally will be the impact on the configurations of these global supply chains as a consequence of all of this? And what will the effects be on the ocean freight business in particular? So I think one of the effects we have seen, you mentioned before that you um, personally know a few companies and clients of yours, Patrick, uh, who have in short production, uh, because they say, our my goods are so precious or so uh, valuable and not so much from a price point but probably from a, a application point of view that we um you know can't just be reliant on long lead times because too many things can go wrong as simple as that so i think the more uh, good costs the more precious it is the higher the likelihood to rather pay more of it in uh, insuring costs than having to rely on supply chains. Why? Because you can more um, influence when you produce locally. So I think as a consequence, companies think will think will very, very hard and probably reflect on, you know, whether um, I only really want to lower 
or have the lowest uh, supply chain costs as opposed to how much is it worth to you? How much is it worth to you to actually uh, have the highest reliability in your supply chain? And uh, this is a strategic um, assessment here. And uh, I think we might even be uh, able to see maybe a sloth, basically like a slight decline in global demand as a consequence in 2022 and further. You know, I know it's a very thought-provoking thesis, um, but uh, again, if you don't want to be reliable on incidents like the sewers and like other things, well, try to have the transit time as short as possible because the longer it is, the higher the likelihood that things can occur, which you have little or no control over. And this, this, it's interesting you mentioned earlier about uh, rail freight. So you're talking about rail yeah. freight from China to Europe, essentially. Is that what you're talking yes, about? There? Correct. Yes, correct. So that's that's a viable alternative, is it? Yeah, and it has increased quite a bit. I mean, it used to be quite a niche. Um, so it's a bit, it's a bit um, similar to the electric cars. Yeah, about ten years ago when it started, Patrick, everyone laughed and smiled and said, "Yeah, look, it's only 44 containers on a on the train." It's nothing, it's nice if you want to sort of uh, greenwash your CO2 emissions, no one took it seriously. But now these days, uh, you know, I know um, freight forwarding firms who make as much as 30% of their revenue, and I'm talking here billion dollar companies uh, only in rail freight. Uh, you know, Duisburg, a large um, intermodal port um, in Germany, has up to 100 train connections per week from Asia, um, and it is massive. It is massive capacity. So you're looking here at five to 10,000 containers a week, uh, which can arrive. And yes, it is still not a lot compared to, um, you know, um, a large container vessel of 20,000 TEUs, but it all adds up because there isn't just Duisburg, there's other intermodal ports in Poland, uh, in France as well, and in the northern part of Germany in Hamburg. So um, I think this could be soon and soon, you know, be more a viable alternative to that because less things can possibly go wrong um, on the rail track. Yeah, the transit time is also a lot shorter. Um, and I think we see more and more operators going to that market and more and more companies who thought, well, I never considered it, but now actually there are so many advantages and maybe it needs to be subsidized like the electrical vehicle industry. Yeah, and the ecologically it has a benefit yeah. as well, yeah? Oh, by far. I mean, the biggest pollutant is obviously air freight, then you have ocean freight, and then you have uh, rail freight, for sure. It's a okay. fraction only of, um, of a containerized cargo. Interesting. So it's one to watch for the future, right? Yeah, definitely. So for, for anybody who'd like to know and understand more about this world of um, global, the global freight industry and ocean freight in, in particular and its importance to the global economy, do you have any reading recommendations for them? Well, um, actually, there uh, I've written a paper uh, on this. Uh, I think I call it... Um, strategies for your ocean freight on the seven seas. And uh, if the listeners mm -hmm. um, would like to get it, they should just send you a note uh, or send us a note, Patrick, and I can send it to them. They can also yeah. find it on my website. Um, and, uh, you know, the second part is probably um, a, um, a book, uh, which I would really recommend. It's not so much just focusing on supply chain, but on the overall context we live in. And it's uh, written from one of my favorite authors called Gary Hamel, it's called What Matters Now. The book is already seven years old, but it talks a lot about uh, how you really, um, you know, tap on the innovation potential of all of your workforce and companies. And I sometimes think, don't just ask your managers for solutions to your supply chain, but really ask your operators, people who are on the frontline rows, to really tap on the entire innovation potential. And I think you can come up with some ideas which are game-changing and hopefully help you also with your supply chain. 
And of course, Excellent. I'm always open to um, a continuous chat on these topics um, and talk about the situation of people who are listening. Sure. So the, the title of that is What Matters Now? That's what you said? Correct. Yes. And the author is? Gary Hamel. Hamel, that's H-A-M-E-L. Yeah. M-E-L. H-A-M-E-L. Gary Hamel. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And then your own um, ebook. So if people would like a copy of the ebook, they can yeah. email me at pdaily at alba, A-L-B-A, logistics, all one word, dot com. pdaily at alba, logistics, dot com. And just write uh, Alex's ebook and I'll send you I'll send you a copy. Well, Alex, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you again today and uh, wish you the very best uh, professionally and personally. And many thanks for being here again with us. Thanks, Patrick. It was always a pleasure and I'm wishing the same to you. Thanks also to all our listeners. And remember that if you would like to know more about how I can help you to formulate and implement international business strategies that deliver, check out my blog on albalogistics.com or pick up my book, International Supply Chain Relationships on Amazon, Google Books or Apple Books. Thank you for listening and keep well until next time.